Let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for your abundant goodness to us. Lord, thank you for this chance to gather in your name in this place. Lord, to think on your word, to sing praise to you. And we pray, Lord, you'd bless this time as we gather. Lord, speak to our hearts, Father. You, uh, you always know where we are, what each one of us needs to hear. And we pray, Lord, you will speak to us. In the name of Jesus, amen. I'm going to open with a little, um, just a, one, a single Bible quiz. Just a Bible question. <clears throat> Thinking about that chapter in Luke 2, about the birth of Jesus, how many verses in uh, chapter 2 are devoted to the whole story of um, you know, Jesus going, <clears throat> not being able to find a home, you know, place at the end, and having to go and find some other place to give birth for Jesus, and then coming and being born in the manger. That whole scene versus the scene with the shepherds and the angels, right? How many verses are devoted to each one of these in the birth narrative in Luke? So, is it eight verses on the, to you know the the inn and the stable and the manger, and one verse to shepherd and angels? Is it five and three? Is it three and five? Is it one and eight? All right, does everyone have their guess? Should I have a showing of hands? That'd be really fun, but I don't think so. You think so? Yeah. You can tell the different personalities. Some people are like, no way. Okay, how, how many say A? How many say B? C? How many say D? Ooh, look at that. Bible literacy. All right. There it is. <laughs> one and eight. That's right. Only one little verse devoted to that whole big story. Um, so what? So here's what I thought. What? <laughs> so what? Um, so when I'm thinking, as you do an end of the year fundraiser, and we have a special sheep in the fields nativity sets, which we'll sell from here. All right. So before everyone else catches up on what the Bible says, we'll have cornered the market. That's what I'm thinking. Um, no, that's not what we're going to do. And your nativity sets are fine. I'm just thinking, wouldn't it be great to have a nativity set just like that? Just a field, tons of sheep, bunch of shepherd, big spotlight, and angels. You know, that's the new nativity set. We'll market it from here. Um, <clears throat> no, what I hope we can see from this is um, that sometimes these texts perhaps aren't stressing the things we think they're stressing. Because clearly, this text, right, where's the stress? It's not actually on the whole scene of his birth. The stress of the text is on the shepherds and on the angelic announcement uh, to the shepherds. So what's it getting at? So in, our, in, in Advent, we've been going through this idea of lessons for Advent, trying to take these, these familiar stories from Luke 1 and 2 and realize there's actually important principles that really apply into our lives. And I think this text right here we're looking at today is lessons from the birth of Jesus in Luke, is that there's some really... Um, things that are easy to miss in the text, which I think Luke is trying to stress to us. And I think actually one of the things that gets in the way of our understanding these texts is we've heard them so many times that we actually don't even know how to read them. We have this old familiar way in which it kind of gets read like it's in a Charlie Brown story, and you actually don't read it anymore. And we miss what Luke's getting at. I think, I think I'm going to make three things which I think Luke's really getting at in these texts. And I think each one of them are really important principles to walk away from. And the three principles are from, from this issue with Caesar, the feeding trough, 
and the shepherds. So Caesar's, the feeding trough, and the shepherds. So first lesson from Caesar. The little verse that seems like almost an afterthought at the start of the Luke 2 narrative, it says, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. You know, why does Luke stick that right in there? And why does he start, begin with that? And a lot of people say off the bat, a good thing to note, which is not the reason, but I think for us reading it, is one thing is that it places the Gospels right in the midst of history, right? That you know right off the bat that anyone who thinks the Gospels are meant to be read as mere fables or just as interesting stories, they're not intended that way. They're intended to be understood that this, this miraculous birth of Jesus, the miraculous pregnancy of Mary, is just as you know, valid historically and happened in the same way that Caesar, Augustus, issued a decree over the Roman Empire in the same way. Um, it's today we're not that impressed by that idea because we know historical fiction, people putting fictional stories in the midst of historical things, but that did not exist in the first century. You know, you either had, you know, sort of fable and myth or you had, you know, history. But it was never, it was not a fable, but it was also Luke's text is never written simply for the purposes, nor is any, almost any historical text, frankly, without a purpose to try to convince you of something and make you know something. It's a careful compilation of information. So why is he compiling this information here on Caesar? So one of the keys of, um, of issuing a decree for a census, right, one aspect is you're trying to encompass your, your, who everybody is for taxation, right? It's a means of oppression. And particularly a census was a way in which you put your thumb on top of everybody you're in control of, and you remembered, I am Lord, I am in control, and I control you, and I will count you. And get this, you go to your own town even. I will make all of you people get up from wherever you're living, what you're doing, and go back to these other homes. Joseph and Mary go, they don't know how long, perhaps four to seven days to get from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. Because Caesar said so. And Caesar is in control. And so many of the birth of Jesus is being opened with this idea that it is under the thumb of the Roman Empire, under oppressors. You, don't, if you, you cannot miss that in this text, that he is born underneath oppression and in control of it. But here's the key idea. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee, Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. What's so amazing about that verse? Bethlehem is the place where the Messiah has to be born. That's where it's foretold in the prophecy that because he's the son of David, as it says in Micah, he will be born in Bethlehem. But how did Joseph, and why is Joseph in Bethlehem? Because of Caesar's decree. The word of the oppressor, in his actual action to control them, God was actually working out his will through it. And who is... um, this, and who is declared in the midst of it? Today in the town of David, what a Savior has been born to you, he is what? Christ the Lord. First century, who's Lord? Caesar is Lord. But Christ is Lord, and he's born in Bethlehem by your very decree, Caesar. The very one who undermines your very authority is actually, it's almost like it's a puppet underneath it. That God's even using like Caesar as a puppet to accomplish his will, the oppressor's power. And keep in mind, this is foreshadowed, right, in all the songs, like Mary and Zachariah's song, 
Mary's song says, you know, he has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble, Zacharias, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies, to enable us to serve him without fear. God is taking his promise. He's taking down the oppressor, right? He's setting the people free, kind of like Pharaoh in Egypt. You see it, you know, see it again happening. And remember, that's an image of the whole world, actually. And even uh, you can see Psalm 2 coming, where it says, The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, throw off their fetters. And the idea is that the kings of the earth think they're in charge. They think they're in control. They hold a fist up to the heavens and say, I'll do things the way I want to do it. I am Lord. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And here's almost the fulfillment of that. Caesar, you think you're in control? You think you move everyone around? My king has come right now. In the very place it was said he would do it. And almost in a joke to his authority, it was by your authority that you actually fulfilled it. That is pretty remarkable stuff. So Caesar thinks he's Lord, but really Jesus is Lord. He came in seemingly subject to the authority, yet not subject to the authority. Why is that important for us? This is critical for us to grasp, right? Who's in charge? Who's really Lord? Jesus. Because oftentimes in the midst of this broken world, there are all these authorities out there. Many of us could be, I don't know, us personally under, you know, uh, terrible governmental systems and societal systems which work oppression. You know, and, but you know that it doesn't matter, that they have no real power. The courts, you know, we can feel under the impression from the courts and the lawyers and all the money. They control stuff. We're powerless, but we're not powerless. He's Lord over it. And God actually even uses it for its good. I mean, I think some of the remarkable things about it, I mean, I don't like to keep on going back to it, but it's a testimony. We should never forget how God, what God did with our church. I mean, we were under the power of the courts and the lawyers. And we try to do what we can, but really kind of powerless in the name of it. But God used the very exercise of that power to bless his people and sustain them. I ever think about the craziness of being knocked out in 48 hours, right? 48 hours notice. That would be insane. But I think it was that 48 hours that gave us the energy and the joy to, to gather together. You know, it was the very thing that fostered it. It's amazing. You know, and just the, just the kind of way in which God uses, um, that we, oftentimes we want the, the power to change. But actually, it's the idea that the power actually has no power. I don't know how many testimonies I've heard of people who uh, have, you know, have, feel like they've been wronged in their workplaces or slandered or their bosses are treating them so horribly, and they find out years later, it goes, gosh, I can't believe the way God used that to get me out of that place and change my life over here. And it never would have happened without the ruthlessness of that boss over there, about the injustice of that. But that we follow God as Lord, they can have no power over you. And that's the radical confidence he gives us. The lessons from the birth of Jesus, of Caesar, is that Jesus is Lord. And we serve him, and in some ways, no one else has authority over us. And we're never powerless. And what about the feeding trough? Now, what word is we most commonly use for this? Manger. I never use the word manger in any sentences. Do you? I mean, it's just not an English word anymore that we use. Anytime I use the word manger, it refers to this story, right? So it no longer has a meaning apart from this story. So I'd rather use actually what it means. Does that make sense? I mean, it's, it's, it's funny. The words actually confuse you. 
It's a, tree, a feeding trough or a stall. You know, it's what, a, it's what a manger is, and that's what we used to call it in English, which we don't anymore. Now, what's important about that is the text actually stresses this particular point three times in those few verses. It says in 2.7, she wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a feeding trough. The angels say, this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a feeding trough. And then it says, they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a feeding trough. Boom, boom, boom. So realize this is a key piece. What's so important about that? And this is the key line of that. Oops. This will be a sign to you that the baby's going to be. Why is it a sign, right? Signs, keep in mind, are not simply to indicate something. You know, it's like, oh, which is the right one? The sign says this one. No, signs are revelatory. Right? When Jesus you know, did his miracles and healed people, it wasn't merely to go, oh, wow, he is the Messiah. Look at the power he has. No, actually, the miracles themselves revealed the kingdom of God, right? It's like he pulls back the curtain and goes, look, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised, the prisoners are set free. That's the kingdom of God, and I'm revealing it in the midst of this sign, which also shows who I am. So in what sense is the feeding trough a sign for who he actually is. So going back in Luke 2, um, she was, it says he was wrapped in cloths and placed him in a manger or feeding trough. Why? Because there was no room for them in the inn. This is a really badly translated verse. <coughs> really bad. The inn, right? The inn, that word is used one other time in Luke. And here's the only other time it's used. In Luke 22, it says, Say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And it's kind of clear you're talking about not an independent inn. Where's the inn? It's where is, say to the owner of the house. So it's a place within a house. You know, it's not a separate place. And in NIV 11, by the way, the newest translation, they've corrected this. But the traditional term was always the inn, so you always said that. But it's not what it is. So the new translation says, she's wrapped in cloths and placed them in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So I'm sorry if this has been your, your view of what probably happened back then, but there is no Bethlehem Inn. <laughs> All right? You know, they didn't like tromp into Bethlehem going, oh my gosh, the holiday and no vacancies. And they went motel after motel after motel, no vacancies. They wandered around, and oh my gosh, some friendly farmer invited them into the barn. That's not what happened. At least I don't think so. Maybe it was. I wasn't there. But there's no little barnyard like that. Um, I should really have, I wish I, I wanted to get that image off. But the way it was is you, had, you, had, um, you stayed in people's homes, Right? You know, hospitality was huge. People come into town, they invite you into towns. There's no inns, there's no hotels. And so people would invite you and then you showed hospitality to them. Generally, it was oftentimes a one-room place or perhaps two layers. And there was oftentimes, they were like a guest room, but everyone else was probably in a common area there. And then either a common area that, and often the animals and stuff were underneath. You know, and so, um, and even sometimes people staying in that area. So it's not, that, that's what you got. And, and, you know, a son, person who's of the lineage of David coming back to Bethlehem, as soon as he got into town, you know, he's got a place immediately. You know, family, all I have to say is, here's who I am, who's my family is, boom, 
in you go. But what's the problem? He was not put in the guest room. Why not? Why do you not, I mean, and she's pregnant. She's about to give birth. Why is she not in the guest room? I think the key part that you, in the text says here, he went to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. What's the problem there? He's pledged. She's not married, and she is about to give birth. That's not how it works. That's not how you do it. And you think there's shame in our culture about that. Oh, my goodness, back then. Incredible shame over that. And Joseph's right, a righteous, he's a righteous man. He's a faithful man. He's a God-fearing man. And he comes with a woman who he's pledged to be married to, who's about ready to give birth, and he's not married to her. What's he, he can't, his words of explanation as to why this happened, meaningless, unprecedented. Oh, yeah, yeah, you see, here's what happened. Here's what she told me, you know. I had a vision that told me this, you know. And they go, yeah, you're right, happened to your cousin, too, you know. No, I'm sorry. I don't, but, you know, just, I've got to learn a bit more control. Um, <laughs> no, but, I mean, it's, it's an absurdity, right? But the key thing to grasp there is he's being born into a manger because he's born in shame. He's a child of shame. They, 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 they don't even put him in the guest room. They put him down here. They're, they're just mercifully giving him a place to give birth. The key thing to grasp is the Messiah, Jesus, was born with a scarlet letter on him. Never forget it. He was a pariah to his own people. And what a double whammy that, that Luke is laying out here. He's under the oppression of the Romans, so much so that a pregnant woman's having to go four or five days, leaving her home to this place in Bethlehem. Oh, to be received by her other people who are, received, who are also under oppression, right? No, her own people treat her like a pariah. She's an outcast from both. Under oppression and shame from your own. The baby in a manger. In a feeding trough. That's who the Messiah is. And, and keep in mind the contrast, right? What is this contrasted to in these first two chapters in Luke? John the Baptist's birth. Right? Now, that's a miraculous birth, right? John the Baptist, you know, elderly, people, you know, elderly parents, uh, barren, miraculously born, you know, miraculously prayed, just, just like it happened in the scriptures with Abraham and Sarah, just like we've seen God do. The whole, you know, in the temple, he actually received a vision. He goes silent. Everyone sees, wow, the prophecies come forth. It says, all the hill country heard about this, and what will this child be? That was John the Baptist. When Jesus comes, there's no community celebration. There's no people going, oh, wow, what will this child be? This is shame. This is hidden. This is put away. And that's the wild thing. You realize this is exactly the way God wanted it to be. Wow. Why? And I think in the manger, what you see is a foreshadow of the cross, don't you? To the cross, he was put on the cross under the oppression of the Romans who actually nailed him to the cross, rejected by his own people. He came to that was his own, his own received him not. But it was there, right, that God worked the redemption of the world, didn't he? 
through that shame and that rejection and that oppression, God actually used it to have great victory. And who declared the victory there? Who declared the victory in the manger, right? It's the angels to the shepherds, right? And remember, it was the angels outside the tomb that said, he is not here, he is risen. Why do you look for the dead among, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is risen. It's almost a foreshadow of that whole thing happening here in small form. And as we think about that, one of the biggest accusations you hear again and again, I, you know, I'm at the hospital with the spiritual group every week, same accusation. How can you possibly believe this stuff with all the horrors in the world and all the suffering in the world and the hardship? Where is God in the midst of it? And I'll tell you, most generalized beliefs in God, that God just loves us and he's good and he can do all things and he works things out, all falls apart when it comes to suffering. And the gospel is set apart. God, far from indifferent to the sufferings of the world, enters into the midst of it, bears it, and then is victorious over it. There is nobody who's undergone, it's, it's almost like any kind of oppression you possibly could have had, any kind of shame and treated wrongly you could have, Jesus understands it and knows it. God is not indifferent to it, he enters into the midst of it and is victorious over it and will lead those who trust in him over it as well. It's amazing. To me, that is the lesson of the manger. It's the cross and his victory over it. Right there in the midst of this shame, in the midst of this home, uh, and they're, they're, mis- they're treating him wrongly, and they got him in, in a manger. What's happening right out in the fields? The angels are coming down and announcing, unto us a Savior is born. He is the Lord. And, the, and they're, they are crying glory. And right in the midst of that. And so if the lesson from the feeding trough is Jesus' victory over shame, why did the shepherds get all this? Because it all came out to them, wasn't it? All the attention of the text is on the shepherds. It's almost this obscure, forgotten birth. And out there in the field... There's all the glory. The glory of the Lord shine. What a phrase that is. We say it so many times you forget how shocking it is. But where's the glory of the Lord supposed to be? In the temple. Right? That's where the glory of the Lord shines out. But here it's not in the temple. It's out in the middle of the field. It's with a bunch of shepherds. You know, this is the glory of the Lord. Remember that Moses walked into. This is who got the, where he got the Ten Commandments. And the glory would come off his face. This is the glory that's out in the middle of the fields with the shepherds. To the shepherds was the glory. It was to the shepherds that the announcement came of his birth. And it was to the shepherds that the calling came. Go and see that baby. And then what did they do? They became the mouthpieces that took this announcement to the world. What is the big deal about the shepherds? I have to do a little confession right here. I'm not entirely sure. You know, it's funny. I've never heard something really good on this. And I always tell people, you know, everything I preach about, you should always write in pencil anyway. But this one in particular, you know, I'm, I'm less confident on this one than I am on the earlier points on this. But I, what I can tell you is if you read these texts, you've got to see this is where the stress is. That this is the big deal. So what's going on with that? So some things we understand about the shepherds is that these shepherds were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. By the way, 
please don't read the text the way it's being read in your ears right now. Because it really sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Oh, this is terrible. They're living in the fields. Every night, this is their job, watching sheep in the fields living out there. Other people, at night, they're not in homes, they're not covered. This is the worst job. This is the bottom rung. This is the one no one wants. The shepherd's job was a lousy job, and this is a lousy text. Pigpen should read this. You know, they should redo it, and Pigpen reads it, because, man, that's what you would look like out there. If you were doing this, this is not, like, beautiful. It's just horrible. And, and the shepherds, remember even when um, Joseph went to Pharaoh and said to his brothers, don't tell them you're going to be shepherds. Don't tell them you're shepherds. Hide that. Because how disrespected they are. You know, it was the lowest rung job, right? Yet, the shepherds were the special job, wasn't it, in the scriptures? Right? Moses was a shepherd. And it was actually while he was shepherding, what happened? He went up to the mountain of God and received a, a vision from the angel of the Lord and came into, into holy ground to take off your sandals. David was a shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. Right? Shepherd's that special job. Why is shepherding such a special job? What do shepherds do? They sit there and care for others, don't they? You know, think about what the very purpose of man was, like in Genesis 1 and 2, was essentially to be what? Shepherds over the earth. They were God's shepherd over all of creation, over all people. That is like the ultimate job. What was considered nothing from the world, actually, in God's eyes, was the most important job. To lay down your life for the care of the others. And let me tell you, everyone here is called to be a shepherd. Do you know the word for pastor, actually, in the scripture is shepherd? Same word. They retranslate as pastor oftentimes to the gifts and things like that, but just shepherd. Shepherding over the flock of God, as even as it says in Peter. That's your job. But everyone here, if you're a parent, you're shepherding your families. You know, if you, I don't, you know, if, you're an, if you have employees, you shepherd them. If you have people on your teams, we're shepherding people. We are not to live lives where we take things from people and to live off them and aggrandize ourselves with power and money. No, we are to lay down our lives for others and care for them. That's what we're called to do. Every one of you, you I think about people volunteering, people handing out bulletins. You are shepherding and caring for people. You have a small group, you're shepherding them. People in your community, your relatives, we are those kind of people. We walk around shepherding and caring for others. I don't care what your job is, but you, you need to realize that your job is to be a shepherd wherever role you have in life. You know, you are not to live for yourself. You're to live for care for others. And I think that's one of the amazing things here is what are these shepherds doing? They're living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. They're doing exactly what shepherds are supposed to do. Shepherds were used a lot of times in the Old Testament, not in positive ways. The condemnation to Israel's leaders leaders were, you're being bad shepherds. You're, you're, You're hurting your sheep rather than caring for them. You're feeding off them. And he says, no, these shepherds are doing the shepherds that you're supposed to be. And what they're doing it at night, right? What's all the night symbolism, right? Scripture's huge, right? People living in darkness have seen a great light. The darkness over the brokenness of the world. In some ways, it's symbolic of that. All this brokenness. And the shepherds are still watching their sheep, still caring for them in the midst of this. 
And those people then see a great light. A light of the glory of God. A light of the birth that God has broken into this world. And they get sent and they're said, look, here's the baby. Now go forth and tell others. What are they doing then? They're going out to the lost sheep to gather them in. Remember, Jesus says all the ones who are blind are like lost sheep going around the world. The shepherds were to go out and to bring them in. Go out and look for them. Tell them of this great shepherd. In the midst of darkness, walk faithfully in the light. And that is the lesson I think we are to know, that Jesus is gathering his flock, and he gathers it through you. That we live here under darkness as well, in the midst of a broken world, dark minds, dark bodies, confusion, lost sheep around. But we have a great shepherd who sent us forth, and we are to shepherd those in our care. We are to gather other lost sheep, point them to the great shepherd. That's our calling. As I think about Christmas this year, as I think about these texts, I pray we'll take these truths and put them in our hearts. Remember that Jesus is Lord, that he has the victory over shame, that there's no shame, there's no powerlessness you can experience that he hasn't, that he doesn't understand, and that he doesn't have victory over, that he is gathering his flock. I'll tell you, on Christmas Eve, it's a great time to gather people. People actually, in some ways, they're up sniffing, looking for food sometimes on Christmas Eve. And they'll come in and hear the truth and be gathered in. And that's what I pray happens on tomorrow night as well. That God will gather his sheep. Let's pray. Lord, we bless you and praise you, Lord. Thank you for your abundant goodness. Thank you for the truths you give us in your scriptures. Lord, help us to walk in faith and confidence in the midst of darkness, knowing that you are Lord, knowing that you forgive and cleanse, and knowing, Lord, that you have called us, Lord, that you have shown us the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Send us off as your people, Lord. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.